If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26-33. This is for his namesake. Well, hello there. Glad you found your way back to for his namesake. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be going through Philippians 3. Um, I've been holding back for a while teaching the Bible, but uh, I feel like it's finally that season of life. And um, I think that'll be a blessing for me as well as for you. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and pray and get into Philippians 3. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Philippians 3 or your Bible app. And uh, we're going to go ahead and start getting into what God's got for us today. And so, Lord, we just come before you in humility. Pray that you would bless the teaching of your word, Heavenly Father. And that, Lord, you would uh, just edify with us through the power of the Holy Spirit and enlighten the eyes of our heart with the spirit of revelation. Help us to hear that word clearly and discerningly. Bring all things to memory to which that you have taught us, Lord God. And that we might apply it to our life, Lord, that it would not be in vain. But, Lord God, that we would be doers of the word, not just hearers. And that, Lord, we would find uh, inspiration, Father God, encouragement, confirmation, Lord God, and, and your holy, perfect, and pleasing will for us, Lord God. And that, um, Lord, we would not find it um, tedious, Heavenly Father, the things to which you ask us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, go ahead and open up your Bibles, Philippians 3, if you're not already there. And uh, we're going to go ahead and start getting into it. And so, uh, here in verse 1. I'm going to go from verse 1 to verse 4. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And one of the first things we notice here in verse 1, as it speaks very clearly, Finally, <clears throat> brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of emulation. Finally, when Paul was speaking about the word finally here, it didn't mean that Paul was almost finished. Paul wrote <clears throat> here as many preachers speak, yet we should expect them excuse me, expect some sort of transition in the letter with the word finally. But his finally to which he was using here and appropriating here was more of a finally uh, he, how do I explain it? So it's like Paul's finally Here's not the finally of the present day preacher. Uh, he has another finally in Philippians 4.8 where he kind of does that. But he does not mean by this that he is about to close the letter. The words translated by the word finally are literally translated as for, as for the rest. Or as for the rest, I should say rather. <clears throat> now, what I love about this letter in particular is he just comes right off the bat and he says rejoice in the Lord. And when he means rejoice in the Lord, he doesn't mean rejoice in the Lord when it's convenient. He doesn't mean rejoice in the Lord when circumstances look good. He doesn't mean rejoice in the Lord when everything's looking up. Uh, he means rejoice in the Lord 
uh, in spite of our situations and circumstances. And uh, the reason we can do that is because we trust in God's sovereignty, right? So not <clears throat> not in circumstances or in situations, but in the Lord who works all things together for our good, like it says in Romans 8.28. 8, um, this abiding joy is fitting for the believer because it shows that we really do trust in God, whom we really believe is in control. When we believe this, it isn't any surprise that we are then filled with joy, right? That should be the implication of it. Um, when we rejoice in the Lord, that joy becomes more and more uh, complementary to the circumstances we're in, we're in. In fact, it actually, we begin to change our perception. One of the things I've been doing lately is learning how to quit seeing things because it became really easy this past five months for me to see things in a very downcast sort of way um, where things just aren't getting any better. It's just continually getting worse and worse and worse. And it's just getting harder and harder for me to see anything looking good at all. But one of the things I realized is the more that I give God glory, the more that I thank the Lord, like it says in Philippians 4, right? Uh, if you thank the Lord more and more, you give him glory, you praise and honor and worship him. The more that maybe your circumstances don't change, but your attitude towards the circumstances change. And then eventually your circumstances change because your attitude changes and you're able to withstand all that's uh, going on <clears throat> concerning the circumstances you may be in. Now, going on to the point here, he says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And, and one of the things that Paul was assuring the Philippians concerning this is that he didn't mind reminding them of the same things because it was for their safety. Paul didn't mind reminding them because he was passionately concerned about certain dangers and he would speak, uh, speak out strongly against them. This outburst is very remarkable for its vehemence is so unlike the tone of the rest of the letter that is calm, joyous, bright, but this is stormy and impassioned, full of flashing and skating words, as McLaren would tell us. Uh, it's Alexander McLaren. And when he goes on to say, beware of the dogs, this was a harsh reference to the troublemaking legalist who attempted to deceive the Philippians, or dogs. It's exactly the term of contempt Jews would use against Gentiles. Paul said a lot by using this word against these Jewish influence uh, legalists. <clears throat> uh, going on to quote Mueller here, he says, Mueller quoting Lightfoot, the herds of dogs which prowl about eastern cities without a home and without an owner, feeding on the refuse and filth of the streets, crowing among themselves and attacking the passerby, explain the applications of the image that we just heard, right? It says, we are bidden, Meyer goes on to say, we are bidden, therefore, to beware of men of a quarrelsome and contentious spirit who, under the guise of religion, hide impure and unclean things and who are not only defiled, but defiling in their very influence. And so what's interesting is <clears throat> a couple different things here. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers. And when he's going back to a verse there uh, just before, or half the other verse there, he says, for me to write these things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. It's because he's uh, uh, warning them of the dogs. He's warning them of the evil workers. And he's saying, beware of the mutilation. And this was no small point that he was making here, folks. And they really hone in on here. When he's talking about the evil workers, this describes both what these legalists do working evil, but was also a word against their the emphasis on righteousness with God by works. Paul would admit that they have a concern for works, but they were evil workers, not the kind of works God asks us to do in, in the spirit of humility, uh, to do all things under the Lord who will prosper you, um, and to please God by faith and so forth, and to do these things without compulsion. But rather, these evil workers, these people, 
as Meyer would say, these people are the cranks of our churches. They introduce fads and hobbies. They exaggerate the importance of trifles. They catch up every new theory and vagary and follow it to the detriment of truth and love. Um, <clears throat> these are the kinds of people that come into the church and divide churches. These are the kinds of people that intentionally bring in things like, oh, dual covenant theology, like Seventh-day Adventist, or a Hebrew Roots Movement, or Black Hebrew Roots Movement, or all these other various dual covenant theologies that come in and say, oh, you think you're saved by grace. Well, you know what? I think we need to add some works to that grace. Remember, it's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. It is Ephesians 2 all the way, okay? You were saved that not of works, right? Why? Because you have nothing to boast about. When Christ said, it is finished, to tell us die, he meant what he said. That's it. There is no more work to be done, okay? Uh, but these people would come in and say, uh, if you want to be uh, a true Christian, you must first become Jewish. And they were literally circumcising grown men in order to identify uh, these, these poor Gentiles getting circumcised, these grown men, in order to identify as Jewish first, and then so that they, they could become Christian. It's absolutely ridiculous. That's why it goes on to say here, uh, uh, from David Guzik, he says, Beware of the mutilation. Here's another harsh reference to the insistence of these Jewish legalists on requiring circumcision for Gentiles who wanted to become Christians. This was all done with the idea that someone must become a Jew first before they could become a Christian. Meyer tells us, <clears throat> says F.B. Meyer, they did not deny that Jesus was the Messiah or that his gospel was the power of God into salvation, but they insisted that the Gentile converts could only come to the fullness of gospel privilege through the law of Moses. However, Paul did not see their insistence on circumcision as something beautiful or noble. He regarded it as an ugly example of mutilation. McLaren imagines Paul saying it like this, I will not call them the circumcision. They have not been circumcised. They have only been gashed and mutilated and has been a mere fleshly maiming. And then Martin would tell us on the mutilation, by a pun, he mockingly calls it a mere cutting or a, a catatome, which translates from the Greek to mutilation of the body on par with pagan practices forbidden in Leviticus 21.5. Uh, that's, of course, talking about cutting yourself for the dead. Uh, you can look that up yourself. Um, now, when we move on here from this, and moving on into, uh, uh, once again, uh, starting there in verse 2, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, what's interesting is, how often do we truly worship the Lord in the spirit and truth? The Lord demands that we worship it in spirit and in truth. Now, what this basically means to worship in spirit and truth is to truly worship him in accordance with the way he desires us to worship him. He's not asking us to do something uh, uh, for the sake of, of doing it in such a way as that we ourselves necessarily um, find a particular pleasure in, uh, although, there, although we will find pleasure in Worshiping God simply because that's what we are created to do. Now, the thing that's interesting, nonetheless, is you find people, and look, we've all been there, okay, I get it. I have no beef with however people want to worship necessarily, okay? But there's definitely some people that don't worship in spirit and truth. Uh, and, and to stay within this legalist camp, I think we kind of get an idea that those who think that they're worshiping 
uh, is more, they find a kind of pride in it is the only way I can put it. They find a, a kind of, I don't know, like, um, that, that they themselves somehow get special favor with God by worshiping him by, you know, um, and I don't know their hearts. Okay. But the ones who would worship the Lord and saying, look how self-righteous I am. Look at the works that I do, right? There's those who may not believe they're saved by works, but they truly believe that that in order to, to how do I explain this? That basically they have to do works in order to prove that they're saved. Not because they are saved, therefore they want to do works. I hope that makes sense. So there's those who are sort of like sneaky kind of legalism in a sense where they believe that the more works they do, the more they prove they're saved instead of simply doing those works because they are saved. Um, this sort of fleshly mutilation in its own right um, to which, you know, uh, maybe it's not quite as out there as uh, literally circumcising yourself, uh, obviously, but it is getting in the realm of legalism. And what I mean to say is when you worship in the spirit and truth, you're worshiping not of compulsion not to prove something, not to to uh, make yourself look better, holier than thou, self-righteous, etc. You're worshiping the Lord God Almighty because he deserves your worship, because you love him, and because you want to truly, truly give him that which he deserves, uh, which is the utmost respect and worship and love. And uh, you've got people that, that get a little out there on the other end of the spectrum uh, who wave flags, who, you know... Um, get out there and do some pretty crazy things. I'm not even going to get into it all of it because I don't want to give them any more power than they already have. Um, but let's just say the Hillsong people, okay? To be to be perfectly blunt. Um, now, to the point here, moving on, uh, once again, uh, concerning this aspect, <clears throat> when it goes back to saying, um, who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And what he goes on to say is, once again, just to the point that these Jewish legalists consider themselves the, the ones truly circumcised and right with God. But Paul declared that he and his followers were the true circumcision. And of course, we find that uh, it goes on to say that true circumcision, uh, later on Paul will talk about this, the true circumcision is those who have a circumcised heart and not a circumcised genitalia. And uh, obviously what he means by this, those who are truly right with God because they've been given a new heart. Their heart of stone has been removed. They've been given a heart of flesh and now therefore are worshiping God in spirit and in truth and are not concerned with an outward appearance of holiness, but an inward appearance of holiness. And that's what we want, folks. It doesn't, because truly, to be honest, if you have an inward uh, uh, holiness, the outward will just become second nature to you or your first nature at that point anyway. Um, and people will see that, uh, now that's not your, your evangelizing by the way. Okay. Uh, speak. And I hate this too, but just to make a quick side point, that old Augustine quote is of course, you know, um, I always forget it and I've quoted it on here before, but it's, uh, uh, oh man. Um, man, it's basically encompassing the idea that like a Gnostic idea in which was preach the gospel always, but use words when necessary, right? Is the quote. And basically what he's saying is um, always be preaching the gospel with your life. Now, I'm not against um, <clears throat> living a holy 
life. Obviously, we should. We should live uh, separate unto the Lord, right? But to the... To the degree to which we think that that's evangelizing people, sure, we're a strange, peculiar people and we will get their attention, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is you actually have to tell them that they're a sinner in need of a savior, that they're on their way to hell and they truly need to repent and give their life to Christ. That's the gospel. Um, but nevertheless, Paul's point here uh, uh, concerning our direct context was speaking of um, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So we don't take confidence in our flesh to the degree to which we believe we live such a holy life um, that God will um, somehow use our holy life uh, to to convict others necessarily. Although it may, um, we live a holy life because we live it under the Lord, irrespective of the consequences, good or bad. And I know that some people get involved where you know they think they're living a holy life and then God throws them a curveball and uh, you know they find themselves in sometimes some really serious sin, and uh, they begin to really concern themselves with whether or not they were ever saved, or all number of other things the devil loves to exploit to get these people in a place where they don't uh, even understand um, what's actually happening. Because you know, one minute you think you're doing great, you're following the Lord, the next thing you know, you know, uh, guys watching pornography, or the next thing you know, you're out there, um, you know, cussing it up or you're in the bar again or, you know, whatever various uh, forms of backsliding you may fall into. And, you know, the interesting thing is, <clears throat> I think a lot of this has has to do with that outward appearance of holiness instead of an inward appearance. The outward appearance never lasts. It never lasts. Eventually it breaks down over time because your pride catches up with you. And the Lord makes that very clear and promises that that's what will happen to the proud. Uh, that they will fall. The Lord is no respecter of persons. Uh, if you're taking pride in your in your works and self-righteousness, God will bring you low because he loves you too much to let you fall uh, in such a way as to believe your own press clippings. No, he desires that you worship him once again in spirit and in truth. So moving on from here. Um, now, it goes on here uh, to talk about, of course, Paul getting to the point concerning that they themselves are the true believers and that that to rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And Paul goes on to say, look, you guys think you've got confidence in your flesh? Well, let's go ahead and find out what old Paul here uh, himself actually could have technically um, found uh, in himself to be uh, one of the most uh, confident uh, concerning his pedigree. And his pedigree was incredible. Absolutely incredible. You know, Paul's pedigree... Let's just go ahead and we'll read the rest of this here. But um, and we're going to go ahead and just kind of speed up a little bit, just kind of get to the point. But <laughs> here we go. So, he may have confidence in the flesh. I am more so. This is Paul, Paul speaking once again. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Now, Paul's pedigree, just to give you a little background on this, Paul was circumcised the eighth day in accordance with Leviticus 12.3. Paul was of the stock of Israel, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore an heir to God's covenant with them. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin, a distinguished tribe. Benjamin was distinguished by the fact that it gave Israel her first king, Saul, for Samuel 9.1-2. It was the tribe that aligned itself with faithful Judah when Israel divided into two nations at the time of Rehoboam, 1 Kings 12.21. It was also the tribe that had the city of Jerusalem within its boundaries, Judges 1.21. Paul was truly a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This contrasted him with the Jews 
who embraced Greek culture as it spread through the Mediterranean. In that time, many Jews became ashamed of their Jewishness and tried to live and act as much like Greeks as they could, sometimes even to the point of having their circumcision cosmetically restored or hidden so they could enjoy the Roman public baths without being noticed as Jews. In contrast, Paul was raised by his parents as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. But also Paul concerning the law, once again, his pedigree, he was blameless. How so? Well, concerning the law, Paul then listed three things that were his by personal choice and conviction, all reasons why he might have confidence in the flesh. Paul was concerning the law of Pharisee. And what does that mean? Well, this tells us that among an elite people, the Jews, Paul was of an elite sect, the Pharisees, who were noted for their scrupulous devotion to the law of God. Quote, there were not very many Pharisees, never more than 6,000, but they were the spiritual athletes of Judaism. Their very name means the separated ones. They had separated themselves off from all common life and all from common task in order to make it the one aim of their lives to keep every smallest detail of the law. This is from, of course, William Barclay. The concern that Pharisees had for keeping the law is reflected in passages like Matthew 23:23. His zeal concerning Paul's zeal. Well, Paul's zeal persecuting the church. Paul was not merely an intellectual opponent of perceived heresies against Judaism. He was also an active fighter against them. Even in his blindness to God, Paul's observation that the Jews of his day have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, like in Romans 10.2, was true of his own life before God confronted him on the road to Damascus, found in Romans 9. Now, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This shows that Paul achieved the standard of righteousness, which was accepted among the men of his day, though this standard fell short of God's holy standard because of how the law was interpreted and taught, there were those of that day who were deceived into thinking that they really were blameless, like the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18-23. And basically in summation, if anyone could lay claim to pleasing God by law-keeping and the works of the flesh, it was Paul. He was far more qualified than his legalizing opponents were to make such a claim. So, moving on here, uh, into the verse here, <clears throat> basically, persecuting the church concerning the righteousness, this is verse 6, righteousness which is in the law blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, moving on here, these things to which he counted as gain, he counted them as loss. Well, because any of the corrupting teachers Paul warned against would be proud to claim Paul's pedigree, that which, of course, we listed before. Yet Paul made it plain, these things I have counted loss for Christ. And what's interesting in here, folks, is the word gain is plural in the Greek, namely gains. Loss is actually singular. The various gains are all counted as one loss. Okay? Now, to quote Spurgeon here, he says something interesting. He says, he was skilled in spiritual arithmetic and very careful in his reckoning. He cast up his accounts with caution and observed with a diligent eye his losses and his gains. 
Now, when Paul goes on to say, I have counted loss, Paul counted these things loss. It wasn't so much that they were a loss by their very character as much as he chose to regard them as a loss. They were counted loss so much because they were harmful to Paul, but because these things were ways in which Paul sought to please God in the energies of the flesh. Before Paul became a Christian, he thought all of these things made him a success in the effort to please God by works. We can say that Paul's attitude was the same that Jesus described in the parable of the pearl of great price, which says, Matthew 13, 45-46, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Paul's utter confidence in a living relationship with Jesus Christ goes on to tell us in Philippians 3, Paul's gain in Jesus Christ. If you want to go ahead and get back into uh, the scripture here, go ahead and back to, your, to the Bible. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, <clears throat> think about what he gave up here basically to, to follow Jesus. Think about someone like a Bill Gates, right? Big guy in the tech world, knows his stuff, seen among, you know, his other uh, peers as an elite, that he's, you know, basically an elite among elites, that his pedigree, you know, uh, being uh, who he is um, as a uh, 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 computer programmer and a number, or not computer programmer, but a computer um, software designer and a number of other things to which he's done has given him this notoriety, this money, this, I mean, he's just got one heck of a bright future ahead of him, right? Let's say we found him in the days of Apple, you know, early on, and he gets smacked upside the head by the Lord and, you know, um, tells him, look, man, everything you're doing is a complete waste of time. And, um, you know, what is it, you know, basically giving him the old, what does it gain a man to, uh, gain the whole world and lose his soul. And basically, you know, uh, repents and gives his life to Christ right there. Well, what we find here in Paul is interesting. He sort of basically kind of gave up something kind of similar. Um, but more to do with prestige and pride, I would say, necessarily than monetary. More necessary than monetary. He didn't lose a whole lot of money, per se. Although he would have gained, stand to gain quite a bit of money later on um, as a Pharisee, but that's a whole other topic. Um, but the point here is, Paul did not only count his religious pedigree as a loss, he counted all things lost, but he counted them as a loss in the view of excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, what are you willing to give up for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ? What are you willing to give up? If somebody came to you today and said, um, are you willing to give up everything to know Jesus? Can you honestly say that one, you've either already done that or that you're at a place in your life where you're not really actually as willing as you thought you were? Well, from a personal testimony side of this, I can tell you, uh, health is wealth. And I've said this many times before. And I'll be honest with you. If the Lord came to me and told me that I was going to go through five months of, of tribulation, uh, tribulation little t, obviously, um, and, and that I would be tested in ways I never thought possible uh, concerning my health and a number of other things, um, yeah, I'm not gonna lie. That would be, that would be kind of hard. But you know what? I can honestly say at this point um, that yeah, I would. I would still follow Jesus Christ, irrespective of my health and everything else. 
And that's not to pat myself on the back or break my arm, pat my own back, etc. What I mean to say is, I know Jesus. It doesn't matter at this point what happens to me. I know Jesus. I've already got the pearl of great price. Sorry, Mormons, the real pearl of great price. What else is there for me to do in this life but to honor, to worship, to glorify him, and to tell others about him? I mean, I have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Really think about that. You have the one thing that so many people in their life right now are chasing in vanity for their own destruction, looking for, for ways to, to please the flesh, looking for ways to, to you know, um, find a way to, to be happy in this life or what they at least think is happiness. And yet I sit here, no matter whether I have good health, whether I have a million dollars in the bank, whether I have $2 in the bank, whether I, I uh, am seen by my peers as uh, an elite among them, uh, or fame, or, or anything else. Who cares? I have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What else do you need in this life, folks? In Him is hidden all wisdom. In Him is hidden all wisdom. He is wisdom. He is truth. He is love. Everything you could possibly desire in this life, Christ already has. If you need truth, go to the Word of God. If you need wisdom, go to the Word of God. You want to know what it is to truly see love? John 3.16. You want to know truly what it is to sacrifice? John 3.16 as well. Um, Isaiah 53, etc. Uh, if you want wisdom, go to Proverbs. There's nothing more you could possibly need in this life. You have it all in Christ. And so, it, you know, the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, or excuse me, of Christ Jesus, all that he lost to, to, to gain that. Paul here put a personal relationship with Jesus Christ at the very center of the Christian's life. He joyfully accepted the loss of all other things for the greatness of his personal relationship. In Philippians 3.7, Paul said that he counted in this verse, he said, I also count. This first counting was at, <clears throat> excuse me, at his conversion, the second sum, 30 years later, was in his Roman prison. After all he had experienced, he still counted it worthy to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus. Once again, you know, like Spurgeon says here, after 20 years or more of experience, Paul had an opportunity of revising his balance sheet, right? And really thinking about, you know, what all did I lose to follow the Lord? And looking again at his estimates and seeing whether or not his counting was correct. Well, what was the issue of his, of his uh, latest search? How do matters stand at his last uh, stock taking? He exclaims with very special emphasis, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. This counting loss was not merely an internal spiritual exercise. Paul had indeed suffered the loss of all things that he might gain Christ. Now, if we really think about all that Paul suffered... If we think about what Paul really went through, to get a good list of this, we can actually just go ahead and turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians 11, and he actually tells us uh, what he actually had to lose uh, in order to, um, you guys forgive me here, I know I'm fighting a little bit of a cold if you can hear that in the recording, sorry. Um, but anyway, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 11, 
And we're going to see just exactly what Paul counted as a loss. Um, excuse me, that's counted as a loss, but rather what Paul went through uh, in order to uh, follow the Lord. And uh, this is once again uh, Paul talking about uh, those uh, Hebrews, those um, those dogs, if you will, that had uh, continually mainlined him in his, in his theology uh, in the Word of God. And of course, because they weren't really fighting Paul, they were fighting the Lord, right? But he goes, this is uh, going to be verse uh, uh, 11, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes, above measure, in prisons, more frequently in deaths often from the Jews. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, which, see, there's even more, uh, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, who is weak, and I am not, excuse me, who is weak, and I am not weak? Question mark. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation? I mean, Paul makes it pretty clear here. I mean, what more do you want from him? He makes it abundantly clear what he had to go through to follow the Lord. And yet, you look at all that he had had before. And this isn't much different than our, than our Savior. See, Paul had God's heart concerning this. He was much like Jesus, in a sense, in this way somewhat. And what's interesting is when Paul... When Jesus came to Paul on the road to Damascus, one of the first things Jesus told Paul is that in uh, Romans 9 there, that he was going to suffer, excuse me, uh, Acts 9, that he was going to suffer uh, to follow him. He told him that he was going to suffer to follow him. And yet, Paul still said, yeah, I'll follow you. You know, he made it abundantly clear. Sure, I'm still going to follow you then. Come whatever. You know, and I mean, that was just Paul's heart. That's how, that's, that's how Paul rolled, if you will. And what's interesting is, when you think about it, not only did he go through all of that, yet was still going to be martyred, of course, in Rome, as we know, um, and yet he still chose to follow the Lord. And, and this is where it gets a little bit more encouraging. And we're going to speed up a bit here because I don't have much more time. Um, but... And we're just going to kind of cruise through this part so we can get over to uh, verse 12. But I'll still make a few quick points. So starting back here in um, verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, right, but rather Jehovah's sick canoe, the Lord my righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Right? So how? Well, first you got to put your faith in God, right? That's where that righteousness comes from. The Lord is our righteousness. Why? So that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So remember, once again, Acts 9, Jesus told him that he was going to identify with him in his sufferings. And it goes back to the point that I was going to say Paul is much like Jesus in that regard, that he was going to identify with Jesus in his sufferings as well. Why? So that he could be conformed to his death. 
Why? If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Uh, knowing that, of course, eventually Paul would obtain uh, the resurrection from the dead. Um, what's interesting about this uh, part um, concerning the resurrection from the dead um, is what he meant to say was knowing Jesus means knowing this power. The new life that is imparted to us now, not when we die. So that's the true resurrection power that dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to forget that. Uh, now moving on to verse 12 here. Not that I have already attained, right? Not, not claiming I've already, you know, got it all figured out and I've got, you know, everything uh, in which uh, uh, I desire concerning holiness, if you will. But he says, or am already perfected, same point, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what's very interesting about this, if we think about it, um, he's pressing forward. He's not looking back. He's not looking back to those things um, that, that used to hold him back. Um, understanding that all that he counted as gain is loss. Understanding that he doesn't need to look back um, on his life and really second guess uh, uh, where he's at at his rather in his relationship with Jesus Christ at this point. Rather, he wants to look forward because to look back, and I've, I've made this point before, and don't get me wrong, I love nostalgia, but nostalgia is truly punishment for those who chose not to live in the present. And Paul was basically saying, I'm living not only in the present, but I'm living in the future. And once again, to be any earthly good, you have to be heavenly minded, right? And that's basically what Paul is saying here. He says that to be mature is to be heavenly minded, that um, he's going to continue to reach forward to those things which are ahead, that he's going to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That, you know, back and moving on here to verse 15, he says, therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So even God is faithful to reveal even this to you. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. So what is the mind to which he's talking about? He's talking about the mind that is the upward call in Christ Jesus, the one that is goal-oriented. The goal to which is the prize, to which is <clears throat> the upward call in Christ itself. That is the prize. Um, and as far as concerning crowns, of course, we can go on to the Bema seat and all that other stuff that comes with that, the crowns to which we will cast before Jesus, um, you know, uh, and so forth. But uh, there's even stuff to which we'll be given in heaven we don't even completely understand yet. Uh, but once again, the Lord will reveal those things to us, right? But the point is, in due time. Uh, but even, in, he says, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind as well. So he's saying, look, you guys haven't obtained it, so to speak, either. Um, but, and neither is Paul, but what he's saying is, let's walk of the same rule. In other words, let's all be of one mind concerning this upward call in Christ Jesus, this call. Let's live up. And this is something I've always said. As a truly blood-bought believer in Christ Jesus, I am personally not trying to um, I'm not trying to be something I'm not. I'm simply trying to live up to what God has already, um, already said I am. 
In other words, where he says that I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. Where in First Peter, where he talks about that we're kings and priests and so forth. Um, that, you know, that in heaven, uh, we're not exactly paupers. We're actually royalty in heaven, essentially, uh, to some degree. And so, although we're servants, right? Because he who serves, um, he who is a servant, rather, a minister, if you will, uh, is seen highly regarded in heaven. Um, so get some good practice on earth because you're still going to be serving quite a bit in heaven just in case you're not aware of that. And uh, that's uh, because we identify with Christ in that way as well. But the point is, I'm just going to read this really quick and uh, we're going to go ahead and, and call it quits here. Brethren, join in, join in following my example and note that those who so walk as you have also for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction and whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. By the way, that's the rapture in case you're not aware. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working. So that's the transformation to which we will take uh, between here and heaven the working by which he is able to even subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And so, uh, that's a little bit of, of uh, chapter 4 as well. Um, but the point is, nonetheless, uh, we can see Paul's heart here. It's pretty clear and obvious that we are to follow his example, uh, Paul's example, right, concerning the kind of life that he lived and he walked as, and that um, we're also... Uh, uh, to take and heed his warning that there's enemies of the cross of Christ who in his destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So we can tell who these people are. Uh, we're to be careful, of course, and have discernment, right? Uh, don't be foolish. Um, uh, bad company um, will be to your ruin, right? So uh, make sure you're sanctified. You're separate from those in whom you know are going to lead you astray. That's just quite common sense at this point, sanctified common sense, who set their mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven. So make sure that when you're here on earth, that we're not mingling uh, with those who don't uh, have the same ends in mind. Uh, we have no business hanging with uh, people at the bar. We have no business hanging with people um, 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 and, you know, put it this way, don't let your feet carry you where you don't think Jesus will follow you, right? If you don't think Jesus would follow you there, I wouldn't go there. You know, strip clubs, uh, pornography late at night, um, a number of other things, you know, darn well, you shouldn't be doing. And if you don't think you can take Jesus in that place with you, unless you're going in there to minister and preach the gospel, right? Um, yeah, you just have no business there. So that's what he's basically getting at here as far as concerning the kinds of people in, tomb, in whom which uh, we should uh, avoid, essentially. Uh, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, once again looking forward to the rapture, uh, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, like a body like Christ, right? Uh, that fourth dimensional body, you might say, in a sense, it walks through walls. Uh, according to the working by which he is able to even subdue all things to himself. And so um, that's it, guys. So anyway, tell me what you think. That was Philippians 3. I didn't get to as much as I wanted, but uh, hopefully you're blessed by this. And uh, if you want me to teach more of the word, um, go ahead and uh, let me know at For His Namesake for Thessalonians 5. They're on Facebook. 
or um, go ahead and hit me up via messenger. But anyway, that's going to do it for tonight and uh, or this morning or today or whenever you listen to this. Want to say a good shout out. What's up to my boy Art, who I work with uh, at my job. What's up, Art? Want to say what's up to Kristen Lee. God bless you, sister. Want to say what's up and thank you to my wife and family, of course, to uh, my wife Stephanie and my beautiful children. And uh, this, of course, was for his namesake, to the glory of God. And uh, oh, and what's up to Brother Gary Weaver, Michael Stephen Hughes, and Sean. And uh, what's up to all the new people listening? God bless you and thank you for listening. And uh, please, by all means, subscribe and uh, send people this way on TikTok or wherever uh, you can get them from and bring them on over. Uh, we appreciate all the uh, new listeners. And uh, just pray that God continues to use this to uh, grow the kingdom and glorify his name. And uh, so for that, God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day to the glory of God.